I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! With the Capital One Saver Card, you earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. Does that include dinner at that new French place? Yep, 4% cash back there. How about bowling with my friends? Yeah, 4% cash back on that too. Nice. And that'll be a rewarding weekend. Because with the Capital One Saver Card, you earn 4% on dining and entertainment. So when you go out, you cash in. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms apply. Capital One Bank, USANA. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with Art Byrne. Instead of calling it just in time, you could just call it just makes sense. And it's, it's just looking at things logically from a different lens. It's looking at it from, you know, the point of view of how do you create flow and pull and standard work? How do you, how do you think about things like tack time, et cetera, right? I mean, one of the, one of the Kaizans I was asked to do in the hospital, I went in one Monday and I said, well, okay, what are we going to work on today? And they said, we want you to work on uh, if you missed part one, please go back and hear about his his uh, three decades plus of experience at GE and growing companies by 2,500% and uh, and uh, his book, The Lean Turnaround um, and uh, and The Lean Turnaround Action Guide. But Art, um, when we were ending off part one, I was kind of hinting of what I wanted to talk about here. Um, you know, not so many people think, you know, start talking about private equity and automatically start thinking about lean but it feels like it could be such a competitive advantage. Can you talk about, you know, after operating a business, now moving to the investment space and, and bringing this mindset with you? Sure. Um, I, I don't think there's any difference to tell you the truth because, um, you know, really, you, if you're in private equity, what you're going to do is buy a company and then you're going to sell it a few years later. And if you can make tremendous improvements while you own it, you're going to come out better in your investments than somebody who doesn't. And, you know, historically, a lot of the private equity uh, approach was really, you could call it more like financial engineering. How do I buy it and then flip it a couple of years later in some fashion where, um, you know, the private equity firm and its investors come out well, um, but, but not, necessarily, not necessarily do a whole lot to change the company other than maybe rip out a bunch of costs as, as fast as you can. <clears throat> but instead, if you, if you bought it and and started right away doing lean and started getting the, the reduction in waste and get the waste to come out of the company, then you're going to get some pretty big gains over the course of, of ownership that are going to translate into a, a, a better result. Uh, we always approach the, the private equity part that if we're going to buy a company, we always want to run it as if we're going to own it forever. And <clears throat> implementing lean is a Something that you know, it's it's something that takes time. It happens over years, not over or not over weeks or months. And so we just keep pounding away at, at removing the waste. And bit by bit, the earnings are coming up, the inventory turns are going up, customer service is getting better. You're gaining market share, um, and and the enterprise value goes up. And at the end of the day, when you're in the private equity business, it's really kind of all about improving the enterprise value of the business you bought. And so I know. J.W. Childs, I think they manage about 
three, a little over three billion in assets at this point. And and at your time there, you guys were primarily focused on mid market. Is that right? Yes, pretty much mid market uh, companies with with some sort of uh, you know connection to the consumer. Really, not we weren't in the automotive business, automotive businesses, those kind of things, but uh, other other kind of markets. But a lot of them were manufacturing businesses. Yeah. So uh, you know, we were talking before about this idea of how staff you know they might resist it at first but when they realize you know hey you know the boss is actually leading with some more humility and listening for a change and the people who are closest to the work get to make the suggestions and all of a sudden people really start to like it and it catches on and you know i can see how it could be a virtuous circle of hey my job's safer i like it better you know i feel like i'm winning because we're doing more it it becomes like a sport i want to play but what about before that you know you guys buy a company and it's that that first introduction phase of who are these guys? What's this going to be like? And and getting to the point where they actually start trying it be- before it's caught on. Any advice for those, you know, just that very first step of here's what's going to happen and here's what to expect or, you know, easing yeah. them into it? Yeah, I, I think I have a you know philosophy or an approach to that that I think works. And um, it, it goes back to really my days running Wiremole because over the nine and a half years there, we acquired 21 different companies, you know, different sizes. A lot of them were fairly small, product line additions, that kind of stuff. And we created, we kind of created a standard work for Lean. First of all, in the acquisition process, we made it known to the, the company we were looking at that Lean was our philosophy and our management approach and that they could expect us to implement that in their business if, if we were successful in acquiring it. So there wasn't any hidden ball to begin with, and we did the same thing in the private equity business. We let them know that that's how we would try and run the company, and that by doing that, that it was going to be better for everybody, particularly their employees. So at, at Wiremold, our standard work for this was once we bought the company, let's say the, the deal financially closed on a Thursday or a Friday, well, by the next Monday, we would be at the company, would introduce Wiremold, would get everybody in a room, would give them a an overview of wire mold, et cetera. Then we give them two or three hours of, of, of training and lean and the concepts and principles and why would we want to do this. Then we'd let them go to lunch and then we'd start the first two Kaizen's right after lunch and run them through the rest of the week. And we, we got some pretty dramatic improvements as you might expect in the very first week. And of course the employees in the new company were, you know, I guess you could say shocked, like, holy smokes. These guys came in here the first day and started moving equipment around and changing things and changing our layout, but getting tremendous productivity gains and quality gains, et cetera. And I think by doing that, um, you let you let the new company know right away um, what this is going to be like. And, and it's their employees that are on these Kaizen teams, and so they're getting a taste of it, and they're, and they're pretty excited, and hopefully will tell the rest of their colleagues that, gee, you, you can't imagine what we just did this week. It was so much fun. And we got all these gains and my job is much better, et cetera. You know, you can contrast that with the traditional approach, which is, okay, we bought the company. Now we'll send the finance guys in and we'll send the marketing and sales people in and we'll spend six to eight or nine months analyzing it in more detail. And then we'll determine what we're going to do. Well, we, we already knew what we were going to do and it was lean. And, and so there was no, there was no delay and there was no confusion because if you, if you do the second, the latter thing, like I just mentioned, you know, spend six or eight months trying to decide and doing a lot of analysis. That whole time, the people in the acquired company are pretty nervous. They're not sure what you're going to do, whether they're all going to get laid off or whatever. And, you know, if you give them, you know, eight eight months or so to think that over, 
some of the better ones will have resumes out looking for a new job and, and you don't want to lose those people. And so by, by starting lean right away, and we did pretty much the same thing in the private equity world. It wasn't maybe the next week in that case, it was shortly thereafter. Um, everybody understood what the, what the game plan was pretty quickly. So I just think that that's a better approach. Um, and you know, the way we did it is, is I, I would become the, as an, I was an operating partner at Charles and, and that meant that, you know, I would get involved when we were doing the due diligence of the company and I'd, you know, help some of the analysis But my, my main function was to walk around the facilities and sort of, you know, determine what, what could we do with this and how fast could we do it? And, you know, then I would become the, if we bought it, then I'd become the chairman. And my role was really to work with the management team to teach them lean and get them involved and, and start doing Kaizen and, and, and start to make the improvements. So if you do that, I think you get much more gain much faster than if you just think of it from a financial point of view and, and don't take any kind of action at all. Yeah. And it makes so much sense to just start with a bang and instead of doing a lot of talking, let them actually see a benefit and sure. they don't have to take it on faith when they can actually, you know, they know that job really well. And if, if stuff gets messed, moved around and they can recognize the improvement right off the bat, yeah. uh, you know, kind of a strong start there. Well, well I, I'll give you a simple example. One of the companies we bought when we were, when I was at Warrenwell was out in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. What wasn't that big. It was owned by a fortune 500 company as product line. We bought sort of fit with us and we, we were going to eventually move this from Coeur d'Alene into a, another business we had outside of Los Angeles, but the Los Angeles, uh, company was we were building a new building and so we couldn't do it right away so we said we'll start Kaizen at this at this company so it's like I mentioned we brought all the employees into uh, in, in, into the conference room or actually into the lunchroom in this particular case in the very first day and we was about 90 people and we uh, you know talked about wire mold then we then we gave them a coffee break then they came back and then we did them like three hours of lean training and then they went to lunch and we said after lunch the names on the board are on the first two teams. So we went out on the floor and the team, I had one team and the president of the company, we were gonna consolidate this into, he was leading the other team. And the team that I had, we were working on final assembly and this business had five, four or five pretty long uh, conveyor belt kind of assembly lines that are pretty traditional in, in a lot of companies. And, and anyway, long story short, by four o'clock in the afternoon, we had disconnected one of these uh, conveyor belt assembly lines. We had disconnected it, hooked it up some forklift trucks, and we threw it away out in the backyard. And in the meantime, we created a new design that was gonna be in about a third of the space. And we were gonna go from 10 people down to six and produce slightly more product, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, we that after, after, after that, we went to dinner and the guy who was the plant manager of this business, who was on my team, he said, gee, you know, <laughs> that, that was kind of interesting. Um, and then he said, does this mean I don't have to write the 25-page monthly plant report anymore? And we looked at him and we said, well, you know, if you're addicted to doing that, you can keep doing it, but we're going to promise you that we'll never read it, and we would prefer that you go out there and fix this mess. And and he did a great job. He, he, he dug into that. And when we finally moved the business to Los Angeles, we brought him with us as the uh, head of operations of both businesses. So, you know, these are the kind of things that can happen if you start right away and you get people involved. Yeah, no kidding. What a fun uh, kind of shot in the arm for people. 
Well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor and uh, and then let's, I, I have another industry I wanna ask you about specifically. Sure. So Art, right before the sponsor break, I was telling you there was a specific industry I wanted to ask about. Um, and you know, now that at Mylan, our consulting firm, we've become one of the Shingo affiliates and, and we're out doing this kind of work with different organizations. We have a lot of interest in the medical space and I know you've had some experience over there. Can you can you tell me any stories of uh, uh, some wins in the medical world that you've been a part of or seen? Um, I, I can some. My uh, my experience there really was Warren Mall was located in Hartford, Connecticut, and we had two major hospitals there. And I uh, I volunteered a number of weeks of my time to run Kaizans for one of these hospitals. And hospitals are, as you may or may not know, they're you know organizationally they're a mess. And because they have all these fiefdoms, in the, and you have fiefdoms on top of fiefdoms, and you have fiefdoms with inside of fiefdoms, and and so it, it, those things create most of the problems that hospitals have. And so I, I did a number of kaizans there. We did some in the. I started out in the cath lab. We did some in the emergency room. Um, we did some in the. We, we did one once in the uh, uh, after open heart surgery. How do you do create a discharge policy? Um, do you, do you remember one of those that you can tell us a couple specifics on? Yeah, uh, let me think of what, is, what might be a, a good one. But the perhaps the cath lab, that was the first one. And the issue they were having was that they were working so much overtime. They had three different cath labs, and this is for heart catheterizations. And so they, you know, they had so much overtime that they couldn't keep staff. And about half of the staff they had were what they call traveling nurses. And traveling nurses... You know, cost, you have to put them up, you have to pay for their housing, and then it costs you about 150% of what it would cost for a local nurse. So it's pretty expensive to run the department that way. And they were trying to, looking for a solution. And so anyway, we just looked at this and, you know, tried to figure out what, what was wrong, what was going on here. And the, the amount of overtime was really the driver. So you had to look into what was causing that and how did people get into the cath lab, et cetera, et cetera. So it turned out that they have about 50% of the casts that are done are scheduled um, because the, the cardiologist wants one done for his patient. And then the other half maybe is a, more emergency things that happen. But they didn't have any real flow that existed. It was how do you get into the cath lab? How do you get out of the cath lab? And they had, you know, one of the, I, when they bring someone in, they, they had a floor, a whole floor that was nothing but the preparatory and after cath uh, floor. So I asked them, you know, if you if you have a cath scheduled at a certain time, how many, how long before that cath is is scheduled, do you bring the patient in? And, and they said, well, four hours. I said, well, no wonder you got everything clogged up. You got someone coming in four hours before the cath, and then you've got then after the cath, you you keep them around for another three or four hours because they have to hold pressure on the on the thigh where you put the tubes up, so that you, you so it stops bleeding before they go home. Uh, and and so we just we just looked at this and I, I said well I said you, you shouldn't do four hours you should and they said what do you think I said I think a half hour well they thought that was outrageous we can't do that <laughs> so I I I took the guy who was the COO of the hospital who was on the team and I took the gal who was the head nurse in the cath on the cath floor and I said okay you be the husband you be the wife I want you to go down to the parking lot I want you to walk in I want you to go to admitting. I want you to check in and go through all the stuff. I want you to go up to the floor. I want you to get undressed. I want you to go in the bed. I have everything done. And then tell me what it took. And so I, I was doing something else. I came back and I said, okay, what happened? And they said, well, it actually took 35 minutes to do that. 
So, you know, this was kind of eye-opening to them, and they never went to a half an hour, but they, they cut it from, you know, say, four hours down to two. And at the end of the week, we found that not only did we not have to work any overtime, but if we changed the flow of how people got into the cath labs, et cetera, that they had excess capacity in the cath lab without working any overtime that would have brought the hospital something like $1.5 million in extra revenue every year. And of course, it would have cut their cost dramatically because they wouldn't have had to have these traveling nurses. So, you know, and, and every every time I did a, a Kaizen in the hospital like that, we got similar kind of results, man, big, big money results. Um, you know, one of the one of the biggest gains for a hospital is is what you could call bed utilization. They all fight the same thing because you got a sort of fixed cost of beds and moving people through them is, is the big issue. But when you when you look at the discharge policy that most people have, the way that they do discharge, let's put it that way, you can track it and you're gonna find that the discharges all occur right at the end of the first shift of the doctor. So two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon. And then of course they never tell the patient that they're gonna go home that day. They just come in at 2.30 or 3 o'clock and say, okay, you, you look good, you're going to go home. And then the patient says, well, gee, I, I don't, you didn't tell me I don't have a ride. My wife is working. She doesn't get off. I can't get out of here until 6 or 7 at night. So now you got the person, you know, another bunch of hours. You're going to feed them dinner. Uh, and after that, the bed's not going to get changed over. And so you could have had somebody else in that bed all afternoon and, and paying, but you don't. And so I asked the, the, uh, the finance guy in the hospital, I said, I want you to tell me what's the financial impact of a 25% improvement in bed turnover? And he kind of hesitated, but I, I kind of forced him. And anyway, this was a, a 500, about a $500 million annual revenue hospital. And he said the impact of a 25% increase in bed turnover was going to be uh, $60 million. So if you can think about that, $60 million, there's no capital investment involved. The things you have to do are pretty simple to make that occur. But getting getting the people to do it is pretty hard. So I mean, I just found that the gains in hospitals were tremendous. And and one of the interesting things in hospitals is, you know, in, in manufacturing or any other business, we think of terms of value streams and flow and things like that. In hospitals, they don't have any things like that. They have fiefdoms instead. Uh, but the reality is, is they have they have natural value streams. For example, if you Go back and let's say we have a $500 million annual revenue hospital. I can almost guarantee you that someplace between $150 million and $200 million of that revenue is in a, a value stream, natural value stream called the heart and everything related to the heart. But you know what? No one's in charge of that. No one runs that heart business within this, within this company, within this hospital. What you have is you've got cardiologists, you've got maybe cardiac surgeons, maybe you have cardiac PAs, and maybe you have cardiac trained nurses, but, but there's no business managers, there's nobody running this thing. And as a result, trying to get anything done or get any coordination to occur or get any flow to happen never happens. And yet yet the you know the value stream, the natural value stream is there, but nobody can see it. So, you know, and you can say the same thing about a value stream for bones or a value stream for babies or whatever. They exist naturally, but they're not organized that way. And because they're not organized with anything like that, uh, there's a lot of waste that occurs in between the fiefdoms. I think for one, what, for me, one of the things that's so magic about this world is um, that it it's not that you need someone smarter to come in. You can take the same people and give give them a different lens, and all of a sudden they start figuring these things out themselves. To me, that's right. kind of the extra magic about it. Right. It is. Well, I mean, if you, it, it really is just you know you could 
call it, instead of calling it just in time, you could just call it just makes sense. And it's, it's just looking at things logically from a different lens. It's looking at it from, you know, the point of view of how do you create flow and pull and standard work? How do you, how do you think about things like tack time, et cetera, right? I mean, one of the, one of the Kaizans I was asked to do in the hospital, I went in one Monday and I said, well, okay, what are we going to work on today? And they said, we want you to work on uh, mental patients in the emergency room. Well, I'm a manufacturing guy. I don't know anything about mental patients in the emergency room. But I said, okay, well, let's go back. I said, what's the tack time here? And they didn't know what that was, so I had to explain it. But I said, you know, what's the rate at which these mental patients come into the emergency room? And then once we had that, I said, okay, what's the flow? What do you, what's, where, how do you flow them through the emergency room? You know, what's the standard work in terms of how you how you treat them and how do you pull them through to get them out the other end? And once we started looking at it that way, um, it, it became pretty simple. And it was in this particular case, it was about 20% of the people that came into the emergency room were in this category. And mental patients didn't just mean they were mentally ill. Mental patients and that just this definition seemed seemed to mean that they were uncommunicated. You, know, you couldn't communicate with them, so they could be drunk or on drugs or whatever. And they sort of fit this category, but if you just brought them into the emergency room and, and then they had to wait around for a couple hours, they were causing massive disruption. And that was the big problem they were having is they were wandering around and bothering everybody and, you know, you had to control them. And so we just set up, you know, we, we broke it into three separate flows. We had one flow for these uh, mental patients and they had some space right next to the emergency room where we could create a place to put them and, and you know and treat them and and we we lock we had a we could lock the door so they couldn't come back out uh, once they got in there and and they could flow through that and then we created another flow for um, patients that came in that were triage and it was pretty clear that they were going to need a bed for the night and then a third flow I, I called it the boo 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 flow which wasn't very sophisticated I guess by hospital <laughs> But, but what it meant was, look, this is somebody who's going to come in, we're going to treat them and send them home. Boo-boo, a boo-boo could go all the way from having a cold uh, to you broke your wrist, you broke your ankle, you know, we're going to set it, give you a cast, give you some crutches, and off you go. Um, but but if you set up the three flows in the emergency room like that, uh, and then if you convince the admissions department that they didn't really need to have all the information they tended to take up front, they just need to have it needed to have it before the person left, so that you could bill them or bill their insurance company or whatever it was going to be. So you know, once you started doing that, now the flow and the rate at which people went through was much faster. Uh, the wait times could go down, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, so lots of things are possible in hospitals. Hospitals, you know, I just think step on their own feet all the time. <laughs> Those are great examples. Well, listen, maybe as a, as a final question here, um, you think about folks like us at Mylan trying to be consultants in the space and help organizations want to embrace this as, as a full enterprise mindset, not just somebody in operations. Right. Um, what advice would you have for us as we, you know, we have somebody come from some pocket of the organization and they want leadership to get involved or they, they want it, they're hoping that the rest of the organization embraces it and they're looking to us saying, hey, how do we, how do we entice the whole organization to want to do this? Because I believe, what about everybody else? What, what advice yeah. would you have for me to give someone like that? Somebody that already believes that the, that the CEO yeah. already believes in me? Yeah, so, the, so the, it's a division the, manager or it's a, somebody in this pocket and they're saying, hey, you know, I want... I want the whole organization to do this, but I'm not the CEO. 
what's how do you how do you help them try to influence the rest of the organization or how do they invite higher levels of management to to recognize what's possible in your mind well i i think i think let's go back to how do you do this stuff in the first place you can't teach somebody this the one thing you don't want to do as a consultant in this particular space is run around giving powerpoint presentations that's a waste of time um you know why would you do that what you're really trying to do is to help people see and remove the waste and the only way you can learn lean is by doing it. So lean is something you have to learn by doing. And that means if you're the consultant and, you know, I would say, look, if, if we're going to help you, then you, Mr. CEO, you, Mr. Head of Operations, you're going to be on these Kaizans. You're going to be part of these Kaizans. And if you don't want to do that, I'll go find another client. So you have to be willing to fire your clients. You have to understand that this is learn, learn by doing and that you've, you've got to get them engaged and you've got to get them out on the floor so that people see them and that you're teaching them as you go along through the week. You don't want to be in a conference room giving PowerPoint presentations. That's, we, we work with the Japanese, and of course, you know, we don't understand Japanese. They didn't understand English. We never, ever had a PowerPoint presentation of any kind in all the years I worked with them. And I didn't care because if I put them on the floor and said, where's the waste? Show me how to get rid of it. It was instant. We could get that right away, and we, we could figure, we could figure out the rest. I mean, you know, we weren't idiots, but but you know, what we wanted them to do was show us and show our people how to remove the waste. And you know, a lot of these companies that are consulting, they're they're selling a, an MRP program in disguise, or they're or they're great at PowerPoint, but you put them on the floor and they don't know where the waste is either. So, I love it. Well, we appreciate all the time you spent with us here. Obviously. Uh, Encourage everybody to go to Amazon and get a copy of your book, The Lean Turnaround by Art Byrne. And Byrne is B-Y-R-N-E for anybody who didn't know. Um, Art, thanks again for making time for this. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much, Jess. Thanks for having me. You Take bet. care. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about. If you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York, and I met a guy named Brent Thompson very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.